In Psalm 5 verse 1. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice, in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors bloodthirsty and deceitful man. So, um, now David... A lot of these are kind of very similar themes, and I don't want to just come in and repeat myself. I really don't want to do that. There's some depth to these, and, and also I think I kind of promised I'd try to do one a Wednesday. I'm about to break that promise. There's just too much, and I really want to make sure I take my time. And so if it takes a little while longer, then we'll just, it's so be it. You'll just have to do that. Um, he makes some general statements about the nature of men and women and about the corresponding nature of God. That happens a lot in the Bible. The idea of juxtaposition, do you know what I mean by that? You take two things that are, that are, that are diametrically opposed, two things that are opposites, and you compare them. So we have one time the wickedness of man and then the infinite beauty and the infinite righteousness and holiness of God. We're going to see that shine through in, in Psalm 5. Look, it's clear that, that the Lord judges men and women morally. It is also made understandable that he's forged a way for humanity in which sin can be transcended and peace and harmony found in God. It is about the fact that God is going to judge people. We, we can't run away from that. And I think a lot of times in the church we, we make every attempt to. People want the blessings and we don't want to be held accountable. We want the blessings of God. But they do not want to, we don't want to necessarily have to answer for our crimes. And the people in this room, probably to be honest with you, who have never, um, who don't even break the speed limit. Is there anybody that just does not break the speed limit ever? You're just like the best driver in the world. I see no, there's hands, there you go, all right. It'd be, it'd be somebody. There's, look, there's going to be one in every crowd, okay, that never, that if it says 55, they'll drive 50, okay. There's going to be one. And then there's other people in this room right now, you know who you are, for whom speed limits are suggestions. If you can do it, you will, but you just don't find yourself able to comply very often. All right. It's just too slow. And you got a lot, you got a lot to get done, okay? I get it. I totally understand. I'm not judging it at all. So don't worry about that. But you know, technically those things are crimes, right? When we do that, if we get caught, we find out very quickly that it's a crime, don't we? We get a ticket. Well, unfortunately, the, usually the patrolman will tell you, right? That, by the way, speed limits are pretty, you know, set things. And we don't, it's not about us. We don't get to drive fast. We want to. At least that's the way it's usually been explained to me when I trans, you know, transcended that problem. But issue here is that we don't often think of our sin in terms of crime. We think of ourselves as law-abiding people, but yet above the law of our state or nation is God's law, and it's a universal law. Uh, we know that murder is wrong, and we know that, that um, 
We know that stealing is wrong because God told us this. We have derived our law from His. And so when we break the laws of God, even if they seem trivial, even if it's one about, you know, we don't go to church like we're supposed to. Well, we have, we have broken the law of God now. And God is not amused. God is, is king of the universe. He is not amused when we don't obey. Now, we need to keep that in mind because there's a significant portion of this about the fact that God is going to deal with our sins, rightfully so, has every right to do that. In fact, I'll be honest with you, as the children of God, we should want Him to deal with our sins. He does forge that way for peace and harmony. Of course, it's through Christ Jesus. Each stanza of the psalm reveals a deeper truth about the heart condition of people and the way of hope which the Lord has established in His person. And I'm going to do the first two things. Today we'll finish next week. Stanza 1. The psalm begins with a consideration that's common to all of us. David prays that God would hear his petitions and listen to his cries for mercy. God, please hear me. Everybody in this room has probably said something like that. Even though we intellectually know that as, as, as born again children of God, that God hears our prayers, we still will preface our remarks and our prayers all the time. God, please listen to me about this. God, please hear me. Especially when you're in that time of, for lack of a better term, when we're really begging for His favor. Something has happened that's troubled us just so deeply that we go to God immediately. That if you're driving, you pull your car over the side of the road and you pray. You've, you've been through these things, right? So this is one of those times in which we're not currying favor with the king. We are just, we don't know what else to say. We, we so desperately need him to hear us that intellectually we know he, li- we know he listens. We're still going to, going to petition him. I'm not saying that that's wrong or even unwise because David has done it himself right here for us. It flies in the face of the fact that David knew God heard. He knew God heard. He still felt compelled to ask. Once again, I think that's the measure not of, of God, but of the desperation of David. Desperation is, after all, the theme of the psalm. David is surrounded again by conflict and trouble. One of the things you're going to find in these psalms of David, they are either really, really joyous, or they are, he's in trouble. It was hard being the king, and David was a righteous king, but he didn't always act righteously right, and he did some terrible things. At the same time, sometimes even when you're right, you are just surrounded by enemies, right? Sometimes even when you are correct and you are humble, you still have those enemies. You still can be brought to prayer for that reason. Now look, David says this, he says, give ear. He says, give attention. He says, consider my groanings. So afflicted in heart and in spirit, the great king feels if he will one day crumble in despair and stress. You can feel the anxiety in this. You can feel the fact that the king of the whole nation was a very desperate man at this time. And after all, anxiety seems to be the defining factor of his life. And I'm going to add, quite often for us, Anxiety is one of those defining factors for our life, isn't it? I'm not going to ask you to hold up your hand who feels anxiety. Everybody in this room, to some extent, battles with anxiety. Some uncontrollable anxiety. Uncontrollable anxiety. 
And I think maybe the most insidious, um, Lucas, is when you don't know why. When you're anxious for no reason. Or maybe you're anxious for a reason that you simply can't state yet. I've had that one before. There can be things in us that are so deep and so dark and so covered under, covered up by layers of lies that we just simply can't admit them yet. And that I'm, I would just say this, that God can use anxiety as a tool to draw out poison. All right? To draw something out of us that doesn't need to be covered anymore. It needs to be open to the air so it can heal. So it can heal. When our lives are, are perpetually combustive and dangerously depressed, it's precisely the language of the groanings which the heart speaks and the spirit utilizes for our good. He uses that word groanings. The, the English translators translate the word groanings. It's such an important word. Such an important phrase there. That, that word groanings. Groanings for good. Paul writes in Romans 8.26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So there, Old Testament and New Testament, we have a, a comparison in the English language of one word, that idea of groanings. First, we are groaning. David groans in prayer. And then the intercession comes from a groaning, literally from the Holy Spirit. So God now acts through prayer for us when we don't know what to pray. I've told you the story before. I've been asked this several times in my ministry when someone literally takes hold of you. I remember the first time it ever happened, I knew more to do. They grabbed me and said, look, I can't pray for myself. You have to pray for me. I, I'd never been. I was so young and immature. I'd never been, or, or I just ignored the thing, that, that I, I didn't know that you could be brought by, by life to a point where you literally did not know what to say to God. You couldn't even start a prayer. You couldn't fake it. You just sit there in stunned silence. This person was in stunned silence begging me for prayer. And I prayed. The idea here is that when we're in stunned silence, you don't necessarily have to go get Brother Tony to pray for you. In fact, that's way lesser. That's infinitely lesser. In fact, when you are in that stunned silence, the Holy Spirit intercedes for you with, with groanings, with prayer that you cannot understand but that speaks directly to the heart of God. So supernatural prayer happens not by your mouth or by your work, but by God's work Himself. The Holy Spirit does it. Okay, that's a, that's a pretty fantastic thing. Groanings, it seems, are a deeper and more effective mode of communication than mere words. There are times in prayer, in trouble, in, in, uh, in worries, in which there are no words to capture the moment. And then groanings happen, directed by God. Groanings that, that do what we ought to do all along. What do you think the Holy Spirit prays in these groanings? What's the, what's the, what's the message? Is it that, the, that my will would be done or that God's will would be done? It has to be the Holy Spirit is God. Uh, he has no capacity to pray anything other than what? Than to literally pray God's will. So God intervenes with groanings to pray what? For His own will to happen. Because His will is perfect. We say it all the time. Oftentimes we don't really live it, right? What do we want for our lives? What do we want for our kids? What do you want for your marriage? What do you want for your money? What do you want for those who are sick? We want God's will to be done. Because God's will is perfect. If God's will means die, 
then they then die. If God's will means live, then live. If God's will means be sick longer, then be sick longer. If God's will means means, means being miraculously um, healed right now, then miraculously healed right now. But God's because God's will is always perfect. It is a reflection of Him. It's not always what we want to hear, but it is always perfect. There's never been a mistake in God's will. He does exactly what He wants to do, allows to happen exactly what He wants to allow to happen for purposes that are beyond our understanding. You know, the old song, we, we'll understand it better by and by. It's going to take us some time. Many of us in this room have been subjected to the will of God and did not understand it right now, but over time we understood it more, didn't we? We saw what God was doing. We saw the, the arduous and torturous path that many people have to the cross, and sometimes it takes a lot of pain to get them there. In the end, it's all worth it. So we, we see this. Um, to whom are these groanings directed? Old and New Testament. So if they're groans to Christ... To Christ, to the intercessor, to Christ. As Isaiah tells us in the extended metaphor of the suffering servant, there in the, you know, 50 through 54 of, of Isaiah, of his book, in which Christ is a servant, the suffering servant. He says in Isaiah 50, verse 4, the Lord God has given me, the me being Christ, the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. Literally, this is a declaration of the power that would be embodied in Jesus Christ with his, um, with the first advent and now in our lives is absolutely embodied in that he has authority to speak directly to our hearts today to sustain us. When we are certain that we will fall. And to direct us when confusion rules our minds. So why are these groanings right there? It says Christ knows what to do. Christ knows what we need. He knows exactly what you need to hear. And I'll be honest with you. Some people have said that to me. I can't imagine with oftentimes with the, 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 the strangeness of my preaching. That anybody would come up to me afterwards and say it was exactly what I needed to hear. But even for me, it happens all the time. And all I can say is this. That meant I got it right and I listened to my Lord because he knew what you needed to hear because I had no clue. Because I have no clue. I have no idea what's going on in every life in this room. I am only tacitly aware of what's going on in my own life. Things catch me by surprise all the time. If I can't fix me, how in the world can I hope to fix you? Jesus, by virtue of this truth spoken here right now, knows. He knows exactly what to say. Exactly what to say to your heart to encourage you every single time. By awakening heart and mind, intellect and emotion, the Savior reigns over us, spreading peace where there was once only war. That's what happens when He really takes control. Um, I have always been at war with myself. You've always been at war with yourself. He brings peace to the conflict. Harmony, where there's chaos and catastrophe, where those things were commonplace, our Lord puts all that aside. That's how come God can save our souls. Now listen to me. God saves our souls. 
And then over the weeks and months and years, we realize that none of the circumstances to which we were originally subject have changed very much. Poor people who get saved don't just get rich, do they? (laughs) Y'all missed out. Sorry. That was for them over there. Y'all still get to eat ramen noodles. Okay. No. Poor people who get saved stay poor most of the time, don't they? They have a a new message and they have new proclivities. And God's going to do amazing things. But in the end, they may die poor, right? I don't know a lot of people who were after the heart of God who died without enough money really to bury them right. If you're sick when you get saved, you automatically get well. No, there are people who get saved who die the same thing they were sick before they got saved, right? None of those things have changed. He has just enabled us to do what? To have harmony in the midst of chaos. In the midst of catastrophe. So that no matter what happens, I'm, I'm never, I never surrender to those circumstances. Because he always knows what to say to my heart. My heart is not, is not just wandering out there. But my heart is directed by the one true God. Now look, stanza two, as I, as I close, stanza two. We can all take comfort and caution from the statement that our Lord is not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. That's what he says. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Man, that's great. He's another affirmation of the holiness of God. Men are wicked. We are evildoers. We are bloodthirsty. We are deceitful. That's what people are like, right? That's how he describes us right there. And he says that God's nothing like that. Look, we can take comfort but also caution in that truth. Comfort in the fact that our Lord will judge those who attack and defend us from their unjust assaults. Look, if you are being dealt with in an unjust way by the world, God is fully capable of defending you. Doesn't mean he will always go in and defend you in a way you can see, because God's plan is deeper and stronger and better and about his glory and not about ours. All right? Sometimes I have to suffer, Pansy. And God wants me to suffer, and my suffering is for his good and for his glory. But he is fully capable of doing that, defending us against every assault, and he has done it more times than we can imagine. But we also have caution from the notion that our Lord will not tolerate wickedness in His own children. If God judges the world so harshly, do not assume that our Heavenly Father does not look down upon our lives and judge them. Because He absolutely does. He is not blind to you and I. There's just no way. And He's not going to be. But deals with wickedness as a perfect Heavenly Father. God's dealing with our wickedness right now. The writer of Hebrews outlines the beauty of this kind of familial justice. And what I mean is this, that God simply does in the same... Look, and I compare this all the time, but Joseph, it it's just make it less true. Joseph, you've got a responsibility to meet the needs of Olivia. Not just financial, not just emotional, right? One of her needs is that she, she needs to be taught right and wrong, doesn't she? And if you don't teach her, who will? Nobody. I mean, the world will teach their version of it, right? She can grow up twisted if you don't teach her. We have a responsibility to our children, right, to teach them right and wrong. 
We want to make godly people out of them through raising. It's not easy. It doesn't always work the way it's supposed to. But it didn't work on you either. Like you were perfect. You're not. Right? You did plenty of stuff yourself. So, you know, give your mom and daddy a break and I'll give you a break a little bit. But the reality is, is that there is a parental responsibility, a familial responsibility, that we have rules and we teach them and we teach God's standards. We're, we're supposed to do that. And along the way, because he is our heavenly father, what does he do? He teaches them also. He enforces them. He should. He has every right to do that. Now let's look. This is what he says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse, verses 5 through 8. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he believes. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which... All have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Now, let me walk you through it. This is what we'll close with today. Let me walk you through it. As the children of Christ, we are subject to His love. And even the form of His love, which dictates our behavior and disciplines our rebellion. Okay? Our love with those around us needs to reflect those aspects of God's love, right? In that God through the Scriptures, through the Holy Spirit, through chastisement, we're going to talk about here in a second, disciplines our behavior, doesn't He? He teaches us right and enforces that. And He also, well, He punishes our rebellion. As you will, as you did with parents, as we will with each other. As we will with each other. As a family of God, we do that with each other right now. We, we, have, we expect. Do we just let people drop out? No, we expect them to be here. You're expected. And when they don't, we are rightly aggravated. Rightly aggravated. Because this isn't a, a club. This is a family. And attendance is mandatory in the family. It's expected in the family. It's a standard that's very clear, that's easy to meet. Just go. Just go. God dictates these things to us. And He strikes out when we don't do what we're supposed to do. From the very minor thing, like just going to, the, to, the, to ideas of morality even. So let's, let me explore this just a little, little further. To be outside of this chast, chastening relationship is to be illegitimate. Outside of the love and mercy of a saving relationship with Christ Jesus. If God is not chastening us, then we are not legitimately His children. If God lets me do what I want to and never stands in my way and never brings me conviction and never does any of those things, then I do not belong to Him. These are not my words. These are clearly the Bible's words. There's really no other way to interpret them than the way that they are, that they are clear. They're absolutely clear. There's perspicuity in this passage. If God is not chastening me, then I am not His. If God is not disciplining my life, then I'm not His. Clearly, I'm not His. Our interaction with the justice of the eternal God should always be understood through a few biblical points found in this passage. First, we are always the sons of God addressed by Him and exhorted by Him. That is something that... I don't care what 
verse of the Bible you read tomorrow. I don't care where your devotion is tomorrow. Understand this much. You are to view it as a letter from God to His Son. To His daughter. Do you understand that? Every promise God gives, God gives to you. Every moment of every day, you conduct yourself how? As a child of God. As a son or daughter of the King. Never as an outsider, never as a forsaken one, never as somebody helpless, never as somebody in which God is simply not providing your needs. Understand this always. You are God's. Always. I think we're in so much trouble when sometimes we view the word as intended for, for us and we're his children. And other times we view it as if it's just simply not. It is always intended for his children. He's speaking to his children. And we should regard ourselves always as his children. Our relationship with Christ is not trivial, but eternal in its nature and powerful in its implications for our lives. Never can we see ourselves again as pointless, forgotten, or forsaken. Christ died for you. Christ died for you. That makes your life of infinite worth. Because the price that was given to you, that was given to pay for your sins, is of infinite value. The precious blood of Jesus was shed so that you and I can be the children of Christ. As John defines beautifully for us in 1 John 3, 1, which says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Not by our way or our decision or our righteousness, but by the love of God and His sovereign will, we have become His family. To behave or think or fear in the old forsaken way is to insult not ourselves, but the God of our salvation. There is no hopelessness allowed in our relationship with Christ because we are legitimate sons and daughters of God. No hopelessness. There's never a point in your life that it's just over. I'm hopeless. Never. The infinite power of the infinite God is always aligned on your side. Always. Always directed in your favor. He may lead you down paths that you not, do not want to go. He may take you do, through things that you did not want to go through. But the reality is this. He never does it as someone that has the, His wrath upon them. He always does it because He loves you. And you are part of His plan. Always. Absolutely always. For this reason, we cannot merely look at the discipline or the chastising of Christ as if it is nothing because it is a severe matter and it is a measure of the devotion of God to our upbuilding as Christians. God does this because His love is infinite. It's got to be hard to chastise. My goodness gracious alive, I have paddled many a fanny in my life and it was never any fun at all. I hated it every time. Despise doing it. And God will make us sick and harm our flesh to redirect our lives. To change an attitude. God will snatch a job away or snatch a relationship away or snatch peace from your heart away in a second when we start to take a foot off the path. A foot off the path. How much love and self-discipline does it take Infinite love and infinite self-discipline to be able to look at an entire world and every single time give us the chastising that we need. Never withhold it. I'd relent. I wouldn't have the courage to do it. 
God is infinitely courageous. Infinitely courageous. He'll do it every single time. He will never let up until we change. That's why sanctification works. It's why sanctification works absolutely because God never lets up. God never stops discipline. He never stops working on our behalf. I'm lazy about my faith, and He's never lazy about punishing me to show me how important my faith is. He's never lazy about it at all. Look, Spurgeon explained the difference between punishment and chastisement this way. God punishes the sinner on His own account because He is angry with the sinner and His justice must be avenged, His law must be honored, and His commands must have their dignity maintained. But He does not punish the believer on His own account. It is on the Christian's account to do him good. He afflicts him for his profit. He lays on the rod for his child's advantage. He has a good design toward the person who receives the chastisement. God punishes us over and over again because he's got a good design on our lives. Because he wants my life to be more than I would make it. He wants to do things with me in this world that I would never do on my own. And he's got to beat me to get me to do it. He's got to hurt my flesh and hurt my, my spirit and hurt my mind to get me to do it. He's got to take things away from me so I'll go His way. It's like herding cows. You give them one way to go. They go the only way they got, right? And they'll run at the fence and they'll do everything in the world, but in the end, what will they do? They'll give up. And they'll go through the gap you left for them. He's hurting us in exactly the same way because I would never go that path. I'd, it's too hard. I'd never go God's way. It's too hard. So what does he do? He, he, he stabs me with the goads to make sure that I'll go the way I'm supposed to. Trimming away the excess and boiling off the dross, the Lord uses times of fear and shame and anxiety to refine us as a people, ready for both war in this world and joy in the next. And that's what I think is absolutely so clear, is that because he chastises us so much in this world, the joy is just going to be maximized in the next. When I've fully and completely embraced everything that God is, when I'm capable of doing that, Mike, my joy is going to be so much in His presence. Discipline and chastisement are the marks of sonship. And we must regard them as a badge of honor and a mark of holy affirmation. When God deals with my sins, He does not abandon me to them, but He desires so deeply that it would be the Son after His heart. Look through the writer of Hebrews. God is calling each of us to endure suffering when it is self-imposed and a consequence of our sinful nature. No father's desire to harm his child Excuse me, no father desires to harm his child. Father's discipline because that is the only way the child will grow to manhood. Christ chastises us because we'll never become men and women of God if he doesn't. We'll be 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 year old children. Self-centered. Self-centered and ever God-centered. The action of God striking our foolish and wicked hearts with suffering and struggle is so that we will always be sure that the Father lays claims to our lives. I know I'm legitimate because God deals with my sin right now. I know I'm legitimate because God chastises me. The mark of legitimacy is the stripe on the back of the sons of God. That's what sets us apart. Let's pray.